This is Poured Over, a show about stories presented by the booksellers of Barnes & Noble. Dana Schwartz, thank you so much for joining us on Poured Over. Anatomy, a love story, is your new book, and it is our February Barnes & Noble YA book club pick. And holy cow, this is one of the best books I've read in a really long time. And my notes that actually- means so much. I'm like blushing. <laughs> thank you so much. I'm so happy to hear that. My notes start with Hazel, Hazel, Hazel. Before this book was even a fully formed book, back when it was just a series of ideas in a notebook, I had Hazel in my mind. I wanted this girl who was determined and lonely and isolated and passionate and smart and a little weird. And the balance I tried to to make with her, the protagonist, who's you know, a young woman who lives in the early 1800s who wants to be a surgeon in a time, obviously, when that wasn't really a, a path for women, because she comes from this sort of bubble, both of privilege, financial privilege, but also of just sort of social isolation, because, you know, her after the death of her brother, her mother just sort of retreats into this sort of Miss Havisham cocoon. Hazel has that delusional optimism, I sometimes think that teenagers who haven't been exposed to the challenges of the real, quote unquote, real world yet have. She is so passionate and single-minded and focused, and she hasn't had anything in her life to tell her, you can't go out and do the things that you want to do, which I think is both endearing and obviously challenges that she has to deal with throughout the book. But it was very fun for me to write. I think with a lot of period pieces and novels with young characters, I got a little annoyed because I think especially books aimed at young readers, the main characters felt dropped out of our reality and put just in that world, a proxy for the reader. But then this character's going around being like, oh, this made up thing is terrible. Why are they doing that? Like immediately can identify exactly what a reader's thinking. And I really, I wanted Hazel to feel like a girl out of the 19th century, even though she has maybe more modern ambitions and dreams. There might be more Hazels. We just don't know about them because, I mean, the way history gets written, we don't get to hear about the women who are like Hazel because they just didn't get their stories told. Is this the book you were hoping that someone would have written when you were a younger reader? Absolutely. I was always drawn to sort of not horror books, but books with an undercurrent of spookiness that you couldn't quite put your finger on. I loved things that sort of left me when I finished reading them feeling aching in a way I maybe couldn't quite articulate. My favorite book of all time was The Martian Chronicles by Ray Bradbury. And obviously all those stories jump around genre to genre and across you know hundreds of years. But one of the stories is The Fall of the House of Usher. And it's a reference to the Poe story, The House of Usher. But in this version, there's it's a house of murderous literary animatronics. And some of the visuals in that section were so haunting. They really stuck with me for the rest of my life. And I think that that was sort of my like lodestar. He was sort of the, the lodestar really for me of what I wanted a book to be. When did you know that this was the novel you were going to write? I had had, I love Edinburgh. I traveled there first when I graduated from college and I just was backpacking through Europe as cheaply as I could before I had to go into the real world. And I just fell in love with Edinburgh as a city, just the look of it, the feel of it, the history. And I think particularly the sort of macabre medical history in Edinburgh, like the, there's the story of Burke and Hare, who were two 
murderers who basically just decided to bypass the grave robbing and just kill people to sell their bodies to doctors. And so I think that sort of aesthetic and time period stuck with me for a very long time, you know, ever since I graduated college. And I didn't know what I wanted the novel to be because I didn't want to waste my favorite period and my favorite setting and my favorite tone uh, on a book that I wasn't ready to write yet or wasn't fully thought out. And so it sat with me for a long time and then gradually came together as I was writing it. I knew I wanted it to be about a relationship between a woman who wanted to be a surgeon and a resurrection man, just because I think that those elements were so fundamental to the time period and the story that I wanted to tell. And then the other pieces slowly fit into place. I think sometimes writing a novel for me feels like arranging furniture in a room where you have the pieces that you love. And then you're like, okay, this works over here and this works with this, but it doesn't work with this. Okay. Well, let's try this here. Let's try the desk against the wall. And you just sort of have to rearrange until everything kind of feels right. So I had the big pieces of the setting and Hazel and Jack early on, and then everything else I had to, you know, decide how, how the fabrics looked. So when you're rewriting, is it tweaking more than rewriting or are you just rewriting as you need to? And in some cases it might be something pretty significant. You know, plot wise, I sort of course correct as I go. I think as I'm writing my first draft, I, it's, it's very like three steps forward, two steps back, three steps forward, two steps back. So I edit big stuff as I go. And I usually don't move on until I know where I'm going. I think my bigger edits going back are character moments. Sometimes I, I realize like, oh, I have a very clear idea who this character is in my head. And I race forward through the story and I have to go back to make sure I communicated that well through action. And so I go back and tweak and add scenes, but I'm definitely like an anxious person and an anxious writer. And once I have the skeleton written, then I feel comfortable to play. But I, yeah, I edit big stuff as I go. So one of the things I learned about you while I was getting ready for this show was that you were pre-med at college. And here we are. (laughs) If I could talk to my like 12 year old self right now, she would be absolutely pinching herself. I come from a Midwestern family and, you know, no one in my life is in a creative field. And I just sort of assumed that you go out and you get like a capital J job. I had never seen the blueprint of how anyone goes out and makes a living as a writer. And I love to write. Literally from the time I was three years old, I would dictate stories to my mom and I would do the illustration. I mean, my unpublished masterpiece is The Three Ducklings that maybe one day will be revealed to the world. Writing and reading was the thing that I loved to do my entire life, but I was good at science. And I think that a weird thing happens when you're like a a young woman, particularly who's interested in STEM, like I loved physics and chemistry, is I had really encouraging, wonderful teachers. And so I thought, oh, well, people write and read as a hobby, and then you have your job that you do. I actually went into college as a physics major and eventually then shifted that more to the biology side. But I just thought that I'm good at science. I enjoy it. Writing is that fun hobby. And maybe one day when I'm a successful doctor, I can write my novel and won't that be nice? But if you can believe it, I was very unhappy. So I decided my senior year of college that I would throw everything I have into 
my dream of being a writer, I cold emailed hundreds of editors at online magazines and like begged them to let me freelance for them and just like gradually clawed my way through a freelance career and started with journalism. I think one thing that really helped me get noticed was while I was in college, I created parody Twitter accounts that just, you know, they're silly now kind of looking back. It was the first time in my life where I got external validation and recognition for writing, for humor, for jokes I made. Like I was like, oh, I can be noticed by the outside world, the world outside this bubble. And it gave me the confidence to go for it. Although if you ask my mom, I'm pretty sure she would still like me to apply to med school. If it all goes belly up, I could still take the MCATs. Well, and I've always heard that as long as you get through orgo, you're okay. Like that's the thing. I, I am not a science person, but I do have friends who've gone through it and they're just like, if you can make it through orgo, you're okay. I made it through orgo. You know, so, it, I, like it felt like I was in the clear. I, the only problem was I really didn't want to do it. But anatomy feels like it's the combination of a lot of different interests that you have. Yeah. You've got this great voice in Hazel and Jack. And there's some other characters, but Hazel and Jack are the two we're really going to kind of focus on. You've got this great idea of this young woman in 1800s Scotland saying, no, no, I want to go do my own thing. I'm going to find my path in science, which her mother's already got her married off to a cousin who <laughs> the guy's doing the best he can with what he has. But <clears throat> I think he was probably he's in my mind, just like the classic 1817, like guy who thinks of himself as a good guy. Absolutely. We're going to let readers pass judgment on him. Yeah. <laughs> but here's Hazel. She's enrolling herself essentially in school, science class. Yeah. And things get complicated from there. But you've got the gothic bits, you've got Hazel, you've got Jack, and they meet in sort of a slightly unexpected way. And, you know, there's a little bit of romance. But it seems that you can't be as flip when you're writing a novel like this. You've got to be all in on your characters and the story and where you're going with all of this. That's, uh, yeah, that's a really great observation. I think it was kind of terrifying to write this story. It was truly this time period, this setting the slightly macabre medical setting. I mean, I've been obsessed with Frankenstein. Edinburgh is my favorite city in the world. I put every aesthetic and time period and setting and, and story angle and character that I love into this story. And so the really scary thing was as a writer, like, am I wasting my favorite idea when I'm not good enough to write it? Will it be as good as the version of it in my head that I want? So that was like, I think the first hurdle for me to overcome is just like trying to write this book in the first place. But then, yeah, it's like you, you kind of like you, you said, it's not an ironic book. It's about people following their passions and it's about falling in love for the first time, whether that love is romantic or with a professional industry. And I think up until this point, in a lot of my writing for the internet and books I've written before this point have been sort of couched in a level of snarkiness and ironic detachment. I wrote a memoir that I talk about eating disorders and sexual encounters. And 
this book, I think, was scarier and feels more vulnerable to me because there's nothing more vulnerable than saying, I actually really like this stuff. There's an uncoolness to being earnest. And I think that one thing I really wanted to accomplish with this book was show what it was like. One for me, just to be like, this is everything I love in a book. Here you go. Here's my open, bleeding heart. But also for Hazel, for her to actively and unironically have a goal and want to pursue that goal. And then also to meet a boy. And even if she thinks she's cool and smart and detached to have feelings for someone, which is an incredibly vulnerable place to be. And you keep your characters humanity front and center. They are their own people. They do their own things. Did Hazel show up first and then who showed up afterwards and and how did this all sort of come together? Let's talk process for a second. Yeah. I had an image in my head of Jack first. I knew that I wanted the story to be about a young woman who wants to be a surgeon just because that was so interesting to me. It was vaguely inspired by a surgeon named James Barry, who after their death, they discovered that they were actually biologically born a woman who either disguised herself as a man to become a doctor or did the best they could to transition to live their life as a man. But that was sort of an interesting challenge of what if a woman wanted to be a doctor, what would that have been like? And that was a question that launched me into this book. But I had this image of a grave robber at night lit by moonlight in the gorgeous overgrown mossy cemeteries of Edinburgh, just this like spindly spider of a boy with a, with a shovel, a spade and messy hair and dirt all over his face. But aside from that, then Jack sort of got lost. Then I got excited by Hazel as a character and her motivations and her relationship with her older brother and younger brother and mother. You know, she felt like someone I knew and could write. And then Jack was a little different and a little more challenging. So I actually started writing the novel fully from Hazel's perspective for a long time. It was only late in the process that I decided that there would be elements of the story from his point of view. And it was only as I was writing those that I got to know Jack as a character. There's a lot that Hazel goes through that will be familiar to present day readers, certainly. I mean, everyone's parents can be very well-intentioned, but their goals for their children may not always match what their children want. And Hazel is certainly in that position. And her mother is coming from a place where she wants to protect her child. She even says, like, when I die, you will get nothing. Everything will go to your little brother. Like, I know you don't really want to do this, but you have to play along and get married because it's the only protection you have. And in that world, it's true. But, oh, poor Hazel, she is not having it. Yeah, I mean, it's that classic tension. I think even today, obviously, parents want what's best for their kids. It was probably the way... When I told my mom that I wasn't going to apply to med school and then I was going to move to New York to try to make it as a writer, I think she believed in me, but also was a little bit like, okay, but you need to protect yourself and and look out for your best interests here. Where it's like parents truly only do want what's best for their kids. And even though Hazel's mother, Lady Sinet, is maybe more narcissistic and inward focused and you know, a slightly exaggerated character. I do think the core of her that comes out is someone who fundamentally understands that 19th century Britain is a place where a woman needs to get married if she wants to have a, what they thought a functional life. And Hazel, I think to her credit early on in the story, 
does understand that to some degree. She wants her cake and wants to eat it too. And she sort of has been betrothed basically from birth to her cousin, which was a pretty classic thing back then. Also, if there are people in a family and one person has a title and one person has an inheritance and they're cousins or related, it's like, okay, well, they'll get married. You could know from the time they're children, even if obviously the marriage doesn't happen later. And I think Hazel was raised knowing that that would be her future. So she almost takes it for granted and then has also had this, you know, sort of optimistic idea of like, okay, yeah, yeah, I'll get married, but also I want to do all these cool things that I'm interested in. And it, I think where this story sort of starts is her coming to a head and realizing, okay, the way maybe I envisioned my life going is not the way it's actually going to happen. And that's a challenging situation. I think a lot of young people have to go through. There are a lot of moments too, in this book where either you have an excerpt from a medical textbook from the, and I mean, obviously you're making up all of this as you Fictional go excerpts, yeah. but at the same time, it does feel very grounded in reality. And history is obviously one of your great loves. Yeah. And, you know, especially when it's a little goth and a little dark. So how much research did you need to do to fill in the gaps for Hazel? I did a lot of research. I love researching. I, I have a history podcast where every other week I write a full episode that's a story from history. And I, I always feel like a detective getting to like fill in the details of the story. So I did a lot of research on the time period and also the lives of surgeons during that time, the lives of women during that time. I sort of made the choice to do those excerpts from medical textbooks and newspapers it was inspired by George Saunders wrote this amazing novel, Lincoln and the Bardo, where he does that. He interrupts his main flow of the narrative with these excerpts. And I noticed as I was reading them that some were real and some were made up, which was like, as a reader, really unmooring in a fun way because you're like sort of lost in his imagination. And so I wanted to use that device. All of mine are made up for almost every one of those excerpts. I, there was a real world equivalent that I had and read and skimmed and then flipped to suit my purposes exactly. But it was a fun way for me to make the reader feel invested in this world and to give the world a sense of reality, but also to give them some exposition. Like I've done a lot of history research and I have to assume that my reader or my average reader probably doesn't know quite as much about 19th century medical practices, nor should they. And so I wanted to give them quick little cliff note versions in between the chapters. Did anything surprise you while you were writing anatomy? Yeah, I think it surprised me how modern a lot of writing about and from the early 19th century was. I think this is a lesson I feel like I should have learned uh, by now, and but I continue to learn over and over again. Every excerpt from actual, you know, journals and history books and medical textbooks from the time feel very modern. People had a different base of knowledge, but people were still people. And I think that that's what I learned or was reminded of while I was doing the research. And that's something that I really wanted to carry through while I was writing these characters. I wanted people to recognize that even though people were alive 200, 300, 400 years ago, they still had the same fears, hopes, jealousies, crushes that we have today. I mean, this is really a book about, it's called Anatomy, a Love Story. And I think that that's sort of 
uh, it was on my part, like a bit of a pun. I think the love, the great love story for Hazel is discovering her love of anatomy and, and the medical field. But it is also a story about her sort of finding her first crush. She was resigned her entire life to this marriage of convenience, so to say. And so it's this fun, very teenage and hopefully very relatable experience to meet someone and just have this sort of inexplicable magnetic static electric charge with them. And you've mentioned a little earlier in this conversation that it's scary to be this earnest about relationships and people and where you are in the world and finding your own place in the world. But what's your favorite part of Hazel's story? I think my favorite scene, and I don't want to spoil anything, Mm -hmm. but she has a scene with Jack, who's the other protagonist, where they're down in a grave. And that was inspired a little bit by rumors and stories about Mary Shelley's, the real Mary Shelley's affairs with Percy Shelley when they first met and courting. I mean, I feel very lucky. It's the most fun thing in the world for me that I got to write flirtation, romantic scenes in a graveyard, a very romantic place. And that was just the most fun. I had that scene in mind from the beginning and I almost like saved it for myself as a little treat to get to write it because it was so much fun for me. Okay. So were you writing this narrative in a linear fashion or were you sort of putting together the scenes that you wanted and then working around that? I wrote it in a narrative fashion, but a a very skeletal one. I just wanted to get the through line to make sure the plot worked. And then I went back and filled in where I thought characters needed growth or moments or, you know, scenes that didn't necessarily advance the plot but advanced character or were just fun or important or worthwhile to to read. And so I think usually my process, and I am not one of those writers who thinks what they do is best because I was very impatient and excited to write just the spine of the story. And then I went back from there. So as a reader, are you looking for plot first or are you looking for character first? That's so interesting because I think ideally both, but that's what mm-hmm. a boring answer. I think for me, I had the plot in mind for this story. I had like the the character pieces and I knew that they had to be in certain places. And then I just worked backwards to try to make them as interesting and three-dimensional as possible. But as a reader, I think I get annoyed if I can see the strings. I mean, writing is a magic trick, right? As a writer, you want it to feel like the plot is inevitable because of who the characters were. So in a perfect world, the best book, is when you can't even see the plot because it's just the characters making well-structured character decisions. But as a writer, I started with the plot skeleton and then tried to work backwards and disguise it the best I could. I mean, you studied creative writing a little bit in college, right? You took writing classes, but you were a working writer for a really long time and your journalism was in GQ and Bustle and a few other places like that. So it's not quite like you're self-taught, but you are learning as you go a little bit, right? I think I have this like fundamental insecurity because I didn't major in creative writing and I didn't you know, major in English literature. So I went to Brown for my undergraduate, which is a, a great school because there's no core curriculum. So I will say like after I took all my medical and science and requirement classes, I was free to take whatever I wanted. And then I always filled in those classes of what I wanted to take with history and writing classes. So I almost always took a history and writing class every semester. 
And that should have been a sign when you get to choose what you want to take that I always took history and writing classes. Uh, but yeah, those are to me, because in my mind, I was a pre-med student with a hobby. I think when I actually became a professional writer, I did have sort of a, a chip on my shoulder of imposter syndrome because I hadn't pounded the pavement like writing, you know, a ton of essays explaining symbolism and Moby Dick. But I was always a writer and always a reader. So I definitely got in my hours that way, even if they weren't in an academic context. Once I decided that I wanted to be a writer, I really did throw everything I had into it. Um, I moved to New York City after I graduated and began freelancing. I wrote for Mental Floss magazine for a really long time. And then I was an assistant at The New Yorker and an intern at The Late Show with Stephen Colbert. And I got to freelance for GQ and, and write for Bustle. I was a staff writer at the New York Observer. And then I became a writer for Entertainment Weekly, which was my full-time job for a while. And I worked for Entertainment Weekly in New York and then actually moved with Entertainment Weekly to Los Angeles, where I am now, and then sort of transitioned over to books and television and podcasting full-time. And I feel incredibly lucky that I get to make a living writing creatively. Like it's something that I don't take for granted. And I, it feels like a gift, which is not to say writing a book isn't hard. I'm sure for some people, it's very easy for me. It feels like running a marathon through pudding and you haven't drinking any water that day, only cinnamon, but I have a lot of fun doing it. And I feel very lucky. Here we are in Edinburgh. Here's Hazel and all of her obstacles, but she's kind of wide-eyed about very little. I mean, she's a grounded character. She's very smart. She's very earnest. She's very much of her world. How do you, as the writer, keep her humanity front and center and not let her turn into sort of the stereotypical plucky girl? That's a good question. I think one thing that was really important to me when I went into anatomy was keeping the time period grounded and not exaggerated. And I think luckily, because I do this podcast called Noble Blood, that's often in period, I've gotten a lot of experience writing in period times and in Regency England and post-Regency England. And so I had that baseline of comfort, which I think made it a lot easier for me. I think like because I had written, you know, hundreds of thousands of words of Noble Blood episodes about characters throughout history. I was already pretty comfortable by the time I started writing Anatomy, being like, all right, we're in the early 1800s. What's going on? And then I think from there, I just wanted Hazel to have flaws. I wanted her to be a little naive. I wanted her to be a little stubborn. One thing that annoys me sometimes in novels where a woman is very career focused when then a boy appears, she's like, I don't have crushes on boys. I wanted Hazel to be a young woman who wants to be a doctor and is passionate about that, but is also a teenage girl. And like, I don't think young women need to completely desexualize that part of themselves or cut off a romantic side of themselves if they want to also be successful in their careers. And I think that was something very important to me with Hazel is that I wanted her to be a real teenage girl. That meant having career goals, but also noticing when a boy is cute. And Jack's cute. Jack he's is cute. cute. No, you got that across to the readers. He's cute. Yeah, he's cute. But here they are, these kids, and they're living in a really rough time. I mean, yeah. Jack 
has no family support. He's living in a theater. He's got a rather dubious job, but at yeah. least he has a job. Yeah. <laughs> it's a rough, rough time for these kids. Yeah. I sort of wanted them to be their personal lives before they meet to be sort of opposites of mm-hmm. each other, where mm-hmm. Jack is someone with no safety net. He is like skin of his teeth, getting paid cash under the table. You know, if he disappeared, no one would come look for him necessarily. You know, he has friends, but like he's someone who could completely fall through the cracks because he's already in the cracks. Whereas Hazel has a family with title and money and position. She has every safety net and she's like actively trying to force her way through the cracks. And so I think that was a contrast that I wanted to make very clear where it's like she's coming from like a position of money and comfort and stability. And it takes her a while, I think, to fully understand what life is like for someone who doesn't have that, who doesn't have money, who doesn't have family. And so that's why I think when Hazel's mom is first like, if you don't get married, you will have nothing. You don't inherit property. Sorry, that is just the way this system goes. And Hazel kind of poo-poos that like, oh, yeah, yeah, but I'll be fine. I'll be fine. I'm the exception. I think that's sort of the naivete of being a young person who everything has always worked out for her up until that point. So she assumes everything will work out for her in the future. Whereas Jack is someone who knows you have to do these things to to get food on the table or you're going to freeze or you're going to starve. He hustles in certain ways. And so that was an interesting contrast, especially because I think so much of the book hopefully is about the way the upper class and the lower class interact with each other in this society. I thought you might be working on a sequel when I got to the end of the book. Are we looking at a series or are we just looking at a duology? Or do you not know yet? I don't have a series in mind. I have a second story in mind, which is not to close the door and be like, this is a a two-part series and I have the beginning and the end and then it's door closed. I would just only want to write it if I have something fun and exciting to say, because I assume always if it's boring for me to write, it's boring for someone to read. And so I would never want to be like, yes, it's going to be a five-part series and I'll just keep writing as long as the check's clear. I don't know. I also haven't gotten to the end of the sequel. I don't know what's going to happen. But as of now, I definitely ended anatomy thinking, well, if I get the chance, I want to leave the door open because I had so much fun writing these characters. And then I you know, had an idea for a sequel of what I wanted to do. And we'll see how that one goes. I don't know how it's going to end. This one's exciting to me as I write the sequel. I've never written a book this way where I know the pieces, but I don't know where it's going to end. And so I'm going to learn as I go. Earlier, you mentioned that Ray Bradbury's Martian Chronicles was an influence. Yeah. And certainly Frankenstein has been an influence. Yeah. What are some of the other books and who are some of the other writers that you go back to that you consider influences that you want other people to read? Yeah. This is going to sound strange because it's the time, the setting and time period is so different, but Margaret Atwood's Oryx and Crake is one of my all-time favorite books. It's in a a unique world and it leaves you with that taste of bittersweet aching that you can't quite articulate. And that's always the feeling that I'm chasing. Oh gosh, now I'm like looking at my bookshelf. Oh, Little by Edward Carey, which is another influence on this book. Not quite the same time period, but a similar aesthetic and surgical tools and and dresses, even though it's, it's slightly different context. Sarah Waters' books. I She's think fantastic. for atmosphere, 
Fingersmith is wonderful because the plotting is unbeatable, but also the characters are interesting and compelling in the setting of just this sort of like crumbling mansion, I think was very influential on me. So off the top of my head, those are like books I think that I read who I, I tried to capture a piece of that aesthetic. I also love the TV show Penny Dreadful. I mean, it's a little bigger and broader maybe than than this book is and maybe what I was trying to do. But in terms of aesthetic and and character, it's, it's a lot of fun. So people who haven't watched that, I mean, you have a, a treat in store. It's clear that you have a love of storytelling when you when you read anatomy because the, the way the people come to life and the way the history comes to life and it, it is obviously your interpretation of Edinburgh in this world yeah but the story is really solid and the people are really great but are you more comfortable writing about history now than you are about more pop culture moments I think I might be I think it's like it just is the thing that you're practiced in, right? So I, I do this podcast that I talked about called Noble Blood and it's twice a month. And, you know, I write all of these episodes. And so it's like, I feel like it's like boot camp for story structure. Every two weeks I get a new, you know, I have a new idea or topic or person that I probably don't know a ton about. And I look at their lives and I think, okay, where's the story here? Where's the opening? Where's the beginning, the middle, the ending? How do I make this a satisfying arc for a reader? our listener rather in this case, and I write it and I read it and I'm like, all right, next one, let's go. So like, it really is. It's like writing story structure bootcamp. I genuinely do love history. I just think it's fun and and rich and and I love those worlds. Um, And I think probably I was nervous to, to write in history because they always say, write what you know. Right. So it's like three years ago, I didn't know a ton about 1800 Scotland. And now I know a lot. I don't know if I'm more comfortable writing in history, but I definitely am like in that mindset and I'm definitely having a lot of fun with it. What would you say to someone who maybe isn't reaching for historical fiction as their first sort of book on their TBR? Like, what would you say to them to to say, hey, you know, come check this out, come try this out? I think sometimes historical fiction gets a bad rap. I think people who don't read it either think that it's stuffy because they've read like two sentences of war and peace and they thought that was stuffy. So they don't want to read any books that take place in the past. Or I think people think it's like bodice rippery. Maybe I'm trying like the stereotypes, but I think like people use history just, or I I do. And a lot of my favorite writers use history just as context to tell really human, interesting stories. Like I wanted a book about, the unknown and a period in time where history was, where surgery was a little gory and a little gross and people were just discovering things. And there was that frenzy of discovery in the air. And why not take a break from reality and go spend time in 19th century Scotland for a little bit? Yeah. I think people who haven't read it think that it's going to be intimidating or stuffy or boring. And if I could, impart any lesson. It's that lesson that I have come back to through all my historical research, which is people are fundamentally the same no matter when they lived. Is there anything that you have wanted to hit about the book that we haven't because we're dancing around spoilers? I would say the one thing that I hope readers take away is I think sometimes people maybe saw that the title was Anatomy, a Love Story and assumed it was going to be a romance. One, this isn't a romance novel, but I think take that title with a grain of salt. I think love stories can look different 
you know, in different contexts. And I think this is exactly the type of love story that I want young women and and people always to, to read and understand that, you know, you can have a partner, but it's not like that is the, the great purpose and meaning of your life, nor is it necessarily the central focus. Hazel really is. I really like this character quite a lot. And like you said, she's stubborn. She is yeah. really, really stubborn. And braver, brave. She's braver yeah. than I am. And I think that's the gift of writing fiction is I got to write a character who would do things that I would be too nervous to do myself. <laughs> You've also written what's been described as a memoir slash personality quiz. Which yeah. <laughs> I think the personality quiz part is very funny. Thank you. But do you ever see going back to nonfiction or do you think, oh no, I'm here now. This is, this is the kind of work I really want to do. You know, when I was a young writer, like, like very young, um, like just graduated college coming up on, you know, trying to get noticed on Twitter, trying to befriend editors, desperately trying to freelance for anyone who will have me. I thought that my only worth as a writer was things that I could give from myself where I had personal experiences or stories or observations. Like I had to sort of cut parts of myself away to give them to the internet in order to get noticed and in order to get validated and, and get a byline. And so I think for a long time, I just sort of followed that current of thinking like, oh, if I have a, a sexual experience, I can write about it. If I have you know, a, a trauma or a past pain or something I'm struggling with, I can write about it. And it took me a while to become confident enough to realize that I had value as a writer in fiction. And even Noble Blood, which is the podcast, but it's fully written, it's nonfiction, but it feels like I get to protect myself a little bit. It's not that I regret ever being open and vulnerable on the internet or in my writing, but I it felt like the only avenue I had available to me. And now I, I feel very lucky that I can sort of save parts of myself and put other parts in my fiction. Is that the advice you'd give a writer who's just starting out? What would you say to them? No, because I don't regret anything I wrote and I don't regret any experiences I had. And I just feel like I'm maybe moving into a different stage of my career I would just tell a writer just starting out to not spend all their time on Twitter because it's a bad habit and it's hard to break, read a ton and write about the things that genuinely interest you. Because if it genuinely interests you, that comes through. Follow the people, the stories, whatever it is that you would talk about to your friends, follow that. People are hungry for passion. And people are hungry for interest and you will do your best work if you're following something you love. Like I started Noble Blood. I didn't have any like expertise or qualifications to talk about history, but I just was obsessed with at this point, like French and British history, following that passion, I think for any writer, whatever you're interested in, whether it's furniture, history, your neighbors, your family, whatever it is that you can't stop thinking about that you talk to your friends about. That's what people want to read from you. That is such good advice. Okay. So we know you're working on the sequel to yeah. Anatomy, A Love Story. 
Yeah. What else are you working on besides Noble Blood? And aren't you also writing for television? Yeah, I am. Um, I can't quite talk about those projects, okay. but I write for TV. So I'm in some TV rooms and I am working on two books, the Anatomy sequel and also a book, a nonfiction book about royals, about royals, scandalous royals throughout history and our obsession with royals to this day, why we love them and love to hate them. So it sounds like you get to keep a foot in each camp, which is pretty great. Yeah. I mean, it's the best of both worlds where I do get to keep writing about my twin passions, gross medical fiction and teen romance, and also historical royals. (laughs) (laughs) Dana Schwartz, thank you so much. Anatomy, a love story is out now. Thank you so much for having me. This was so much fun. And it's time for your TBR top off here on Poured Over. My name is James Harper coming to you from Michigan for the first time in 2022. And I'm here along with my co-host, Margie. Hi, Margie. Hi. I almost uh, said hi, Margie. Hi, Margie. <laughs> We're here to recommend three books in addition to the interview you heard today with Dana Schwartz and her new book, Anatomy, which is our young adult book club pick for February. And so we bring three books to you that are in paperback and things that you can add to your TBR list. Oh, yeah. It's warm in the midwinter. It's very cold here in Michigan. Oh, freezing. Freezing. All right. Well, Margie, you got a hot book for us, right? I'm ready. The first one I want to talk about is called The Rook. It is by Daniel O'Malley. I picked this one because it's kind of got the similarity of real life with magic alongside of it. So in this book, Maithen Wee Thomas wakes up in the middle of a London park and she's completely surrounded by dead bodies and she has no memory of how she got there or who she is or anything else about her life. It is one of the most killer dead openings, pun intended. (laughs) Luckily, she has left herself a clue about what she should do next. And throughout the next couple days, she finds these clues laid for her by her former self so that she can figure out who she is and not really what she's supposed to do because she's still in the dark about that. But she does find out that she is a rook a high-level operative in a secret agency that is based in London. So it's kind of like the government of the magical world. She is a high-level person in it, but she quickly finds out that she wasn't really thought of as a strong person or leader in her organization before this cataclysm happened where she lost all memory of everything about herself. So then she realizes there's a mole in the organization that wants her dead and she was supposed to die and then she didn't. So now she has to figure out who wants her dead and why, all while trying to also figure out who she really is, what she really knows, and what she's going to do about it. It has tons of magical adventure, a lot of magical action, but also a lot of self-rumination and trying to decide who you are. And she also is going to have to join up with a group in a different country that definitely thinks of magic in a different way than the people in the UK. They are more of a, we want to take over because we're better than humanity. She does have to try to work together with somebody that, you know, they don't really trust each other and they're not really sure if the other one isn't just double crossing them. It is a fantastic debut. There is a second book that follows it as well. So if you are into that kind of 
fantasy magic adventure taking place in the real world, this one is for you. And that's The Rook by Daniel O'Malley. All right. I'm adding it to my list. You sold me. That's what it's for. (laughs) The second book that I picked is actually a nonfiction, but because anatomy has so much to do with the difficulty of women getting a medical education, I picked this one because it is about the first woman who became a doctor in the United States and the third woman who became a doctor in the United States because they're sisters. This book is called The Doctors Blackwell. Elizabeth Blackwell became the first woman doctor in 1849. And her sister followed her a few years later, becoming the third woman doctor. Elizabeth, you know, she believes that she is destined for great things. And it is the whole reason that she's able to keep going to become a doctor. Anybody that thinks that, you know, all of a sudden universities just started admitting women will have a lot to learn in this book. Uh, Both of these women had to fight really hard with multiple organizations to even be taught. They also have to travel there in England and France and Scotland. They have to go everywhere in order to learn the things that they need to learn. But ultimately, they do learn them and they end up opening a hospital in New York City that is for women and is staffed by women and teaches women to become doctors. They were really important pioneers. This book does a great job of not making them sound like the biggest heroes that ever walked the earth. They, you know, weren't necessarily suffragists. They didn't necessarily believe in the equality of women, which is one thing that I thought was really interesting, but they do believe that women should have a chance and should be able to rise above what their lot is in life. So this is a great one to go along with anatomy. And again, it's called The Doctor's Blackwell, and it's by Janice P. Nomura. All right. Well, I'm picking up on the graveyard theme from anatomy. And so I, I'm going with one of my all-time favorites. And anybody who you know I've talked to in the bookstore, I have sold this book probably hundreds of times. I'm going with The Graveyard Book by Neil Gaiman. Oh, uh, good one. Oh, it's so good. It's just one of my all-time favorite books. And it's one of those books, it's, it's written for middle grade, but it is completely readable and to be enjoyed by adults as well as children. Kind of falls into that you know, Harry Potter kind of category where really anybody can enjoy the book. You know, there's there's this meme about Disney movies, how they always start with one or both of the parents dying at the beginning of a Disney movie. <laughs> this one kind of begins that way too. And Neil Gaiman spins this story of an orphan boy who, while his parents die at the beginning, ends up being raised by the ghosts in the graveyard. And similarly to what you were saying about your books, that he has to find out who he is and he has to, to kind of go on, on these adventures. And what does it mean to be a human boy growing up in a graveyard raised by the ghosts? And mm-hmm. it's, it's a wonderful adventure with a, a lot of action, but a lot of heart and a really, really like wonderful ending. I've read this book several times just because it's so enjoyable and so much fun to go back to. It's a standalone book, but if you haven't read Neil Gaiman before, I think this is the gateway book for you to pick up and read it and you will probably dive into the world of Neil Gaiman. He loves like a magic door or a magic gate. And this is the book for that, for sure. Oh yeah, (laughs) absolutely. For sure. All right. Well, that is your TBR top off for this week. We hope you enjoyed it. My name is James and we are out at the Northville store in Michigan at Barnes and Noble. And you can follow me on Instagram at James Reading Books.
And I am Margie. You can follow me on Instagram at Margie Brook Brain. Thanks, everybody. Happy reading. Poured Over is a Barnes & Noble production. The show is available on Apple, Spotify, and Stitcher. Please rate and review us wherever you listen to podcasts.